I know that normally when I do a uh, preaching series, I usually wrap it up by the end of June so that what we're doing in the summer is different. But this time around, we've, we've sort of brought the series into the summer. And there's still a couple more after today that I want to do before we, we wrap it up. The word perspective means a particular way of looking at something or a particular way of thinking about something. So, you know, as you can see, there's two people here. On the one on the left, as far as he's concerned, it's a six. And on the right, as far as he's concerned, it's a nine. It just depends on your perspective, how you see it. I like this one. The guy on the left, he's stranded on a, desert, a deserted island. He sees a boat in the distance and he says, you know, finally a way out of here. The guy on the right, he's been lost at sea in the boat and he sees the guy on the island and he says, finally, some land. Perspective. A particular way of seeing something, a particular way of thinking about something. Each of us in this room looks at and considers issues and people from varying perspectives. We all don't have the same perspective on fashion. You just have to look around to see that. We don't have the same perspectives on food. We don't have the same perspective on politics, on issues. We have varying perspectives on parenting, on marriage, on finances and how to handle your money, and even on faith. Varying perspectives in this room. We're going to talk about perspectives today. We're going to continue our series, Critical Questions, and we're considering some of the questions that Jesus asked in John's gospel. Specifically, we're looking at how these questions relate back to us. So far, we've looked at what do you want? Where are they? Do you want to get well? Where should we buy bread? Do you have any fish? Today's question is, Will you give me a drink? Now, Jesus asked this question to a woman at a well in Sikar, and he asked this question in order to open a dialogue with this woman that would change her perspective of him, and consequently, it changes her perspective of herself. Now, we're going to consider today that and what I want us to see as we look at this is that an encounter with Jesus changes how we see ourselves and how we see others. Our scripture was read a little earlier. Thank you, Allison. If you have your Bible, please keep it open. We we're in John 4. We read the first 26 verses, but it's a long story, and it even goes further than we read this morning, and, and I will be alluding to that later, so if you want to keep it open. Uh, than you can. I've preached on this passage many times over the last 30 plus years, but I want to approach it this morning different than I ever have before. And I want to start today with the Old Testament encounters at wells. There are three recorded encounters at wells. I could have called this point, well, well, well. There are three recorded encounters at wells in the Old Testament, and they all follow a consistent outline. They're found in Genesis 24, which is around the story around Abraham's servant, Genesis 29 around Jacob, 
and Exodus chapter 2 around Moses. Now, if you consider these encounters closely, you will see a familiar pattern that is consistent in all three that will, in a few moments, help us understand, I believe, a little better Jesus' encounter in the text that we've read today. And I want us to look at these seven uh, similar elements. The first is a foreign land. A foreign land. In Genesis 24, Abraham sends his servant back to his original homeland to find a wife for his son, Isaac. And he wants him to bring her back uh, because he doesn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman. God has promised the creation of this nation, and he wants to protect the purity of it and the integrity of it. And so he says, I want you to go back to my homeland and find a woman that will marry Isaac. And so we see in this story that the servant travels back to a town called uh, Nahor. In Genesis 29, Jacob needs a wife. And so once again, he doesn't want to carry to marry a Canaanite woman for the same reasons. So he travels back to the homeland of his family to a place called Paddan Aram. In Exodus 2, Moses, we've read, has killed an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. And consequently, Moses has to flee for his life from Egypt. And he ends up traveling through the wilderness just outside of a place called Midian. All three have traveled through a foreign land. Secondly, a well. Abraham's servant ends up at a well outside of town. Jacob ends, at a, ends up at a well that's covered with a large stone in the middle of a field outside of town. And Moses sat at a well in the wilderness outside of Midian. So you have a well. You have one or more women. Abraham's servant is sitting at the well when some women come, and amongst those women is Rebecca, and we're told she's beautiful. She's the beautiful niece of Laban. Jacob is waiting at the well when Rachel, the daughter of Laban, comes with her flock to water them. And Moses is sitting at the well when the seven daughters of Jethro come to fill the trough to water their flocks for their father. So you have one or more women in the story. You have the asking or giving of water. Abraham's servant ran up to Rebekah and said, can I have a drink from your jar? Now, when I was growing up and someone said, can I have a sip? I'd always say, I'll save you some. Because my lips are not going back on the container that your lips have touched, right? Can I have a drink from your jar? And so she gave him a drink. And then consequently, she waters the camels that the servant has brought as part of the dowry. And she looks after all the animals as well. When some shepherds at the well refused to move the stone in Jacob's story uh, so Rachel could water her flock, Jacob steps in, he moved the stone for her, and then he watered her sheep. In the story of Moses, Moses intervenes when some shepherds who are, who are not being very nice to the seven daughters of Jethro, and so he steps in between the two and, uh, and he helps to water their flocks in record time. Number five, returning home to report. Abraham's servant gave Rebekah some jewelry. And, I mean, this guy knows his stuff, right? Jewelry. Never really happens in my, in my life, but I don't do jewelry, really. I like more practical things. Toasters. No, I'm just kidding. 
I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Abraham's servant gave Rebecca some jewelry and she ran home to show her mother's family this beautiful jewelry she's been given and to tell them who she had met, that he was a servant of Abraham. And they, of course, have memories of Abraham. And, and so she tells them all about the encounter at the well. Jacob, being a little forward, actually kissed Rachel and uh, told her who he was. Again, that he's a descendant of Abraham. And she ran home to her father Laban to tell him what had happened. Laban came out with a posse to beat this man. No, I'm kidding. That's not what happened. And so she ran home and she told him all about this man who kissed her at the well. And the seven daughters of Jethro returned home early and gave the report about this man, Moses, who had rescued them from the angry shepherds and helped water the flocks in record time. Six, an invitation to hospitality. In the first story, Uncle Laban went out to meet the servant of Abraham at the well and invited him to come and stay at his house. In the second story, Daddy Laban went out to meet Jacob at the well and brought him back to the house. And in the story of Moses, Jethro asked, well, where is this man that helped you, that helped water the flocks? And then he went and invited Moses to come and eat with them at their house. All invited to hospitality. And finally, ends in marriage. Abraham's servant returns to Abraham with Rebekah, who marries Isaac. Isaac is, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob is offered Rachel in marriage as long as he's willing to work for seven years, and he does that. And there's another story we won't go into, but on the wedding night, it's dark, and they trick him into marrying the oldest sister first, Leah, and he doesn't discover that till the morning. And, uh, and then the next day, he, he decides that to get Rachel, that he'll work an additional seven years. In the story of Moses, Moses ends up marrying the oldest daughter of Jethro, Zipporah. All of these encounters at the well in the Old Testament are a part of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he's going to build a nation through him that would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth And a Messiah would someday come from this nation and bring salvation to not only God's people, but all people. And so in these three encounters, each encounter we read about at the well is a step closer and a part of preserving that promise and ensuring the integrity of that promise is, is fulfilled as they're acting in ways that are trying to maintain God's plan and God's purpose leading up to the eventual promise that God has for Israel. Secondly, I want us to see Jesus' encounter uh, with the woman at the well. Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well demonstrates that God's promise is now fulfilled. The land and the people have been created already. The Jewish nation exists. The, The land exists But his story is also a declaration that the Messiah has come. The Messiah that was promised is now here, and salvation is now available not just for the Jews, but because of him to all people. And so as we're going to see here, Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well includes all of the elements that we see in the Old Testament with the exception of marriage But marriage is a very important and most significant part of the conversation. 
So let's take a look. A foreign land. We're told that Jesus is in Judea. There's an ongoing resistance from the religious leaders. Jesus decided it was a good time to move on, to return to Galilee. And as we've heard, I'm sure, many times in our lives, there are two possible paths that he could take from Judea to Galilee. He could circle around Samaria. And this is what the other Jews did because they despised the Samaritans and they wouldn't even travel through the area. It was believed in Jesus' day that the Samaritans were unclean, and so they avoided contact at all costs. The rift went back to 722 BC, if you can believe it. The fall of the northern kingdom, many of the Jews are dispersed to Babylon. The land is resettled by captives from other nations, and they scatter in amongst the remaining Jews. They bring with them a medley of religious beliefs and practices, and in time, they integrate, they marry in amongst the Jews, and there's this blended faith that's created. And so in 539 BC, when the Jews are returned out of exile, they desire to renew their worship uh, and their faithfulness to God once again, and they return to discover that there's this blend of beliefs which which created a rift between the two groups. By the time of Jesus, there's an incredible rivalry and hatred even between the two groups. And so they even avoided each other at all costs. Even though traveling through Samaria was the most practical way to go, it was avoided. And so Jesus' second option was to travel through Samaria. And Jesus said he had to go. The language there is he needs to pierce through, to go through the center. Now, I want us to see that this trip for Jesus was much more than a shortcut or a convenience. This is a ministry moment. This has a purpose. This is a part of his, his revealing of the kingdom of God. We see also in this story a well. Jesus' journey through Samaria brought him to a town called Sychar. We're told this place is where the location is of where Jacob had given his son Joseph uh, a plot of land. The value of any land is based on the water supply in these, in these times. And we're told that Jacob's well is located there. And it provided water for the surrounding area, including this town of Sikar. We're told that Jesus is tired from his journey. And so he sat down at the well to rest. So there's a well. Thirdly, there's, there's a woman. While Jesus is resting at the well, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And we're told it's about the sixth hour or midday. It's, these are important details. They're not just randomly put there. They're important details because this is an unusual situation for a number of reasons. First of all, animals were watered or, or water was retrieved for the family either in the early morning or in the evening, in the cooler parts of the day. Also, gathering at the well was a very social function. That was usually done by the women in the community, and they would do it together in groups. It was, even though it was a practical, it was work, it was necessary, it was also very social. The fact that she was at the well in the middle of the day when people would not go to the well, and the fact that she's there by herself, she's not with another group of women that are socially sharing this experience, suggests to us that something is off in this woman's life and she's likely, it's caused her to be rejected or she herself has separated herself from the other women. Fourthly, you have the asking or giving of water. Jesus asked her for a drink. He says, will you give me a drink? 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus asked this question to the woman to open the dialogue with this woman that would change her perspective of him, and consequently, it's going to change her perspective of herself. She's reluctant to grant his request. And she requests that, she says to him, she expresses to him, this is an unusual request. You're a male Jew. I'm a female Samaritan. Jewish law prohibited men from speaking to other men's wives in public. In fact, even if the husband was there, you weren't allowed to do it. In fact, it was rare for a male Jew to speak to his own wife in a public setting. And so here he is, the fact that he's a male Jew and she's a Samaritan woman and they're alone makes this whole scenario very odd for this woman. It's just not how it's normally done. Something is just not aligning with cultural practices here. And Jesus responded to her and said, listen, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who I was, the word gift of God, that, that sentence means God's provision for salvation. What Jesus is saying to her is this, if you knew that I am God's provision of salvation to you, if I am, that I am God's gift of salvation to you, you would have asked me for water and I would have given you living water. If you had only known who I was, if you knew I was God's gift of salvation, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. Now the words living water means like a river or a stream, water that is moving. Water was very valuable and limited in this area and to have sufficient well water was, was good. To have access to living water, water that was moving, was the ultimate, but obviously impossible. So she responded, this is Jacob's well. It's the only source of water. There's no rivers. There's no streams around here. There's no living water. She's lived there her whole life. She's never seen anything different than this one place to get water. And she's talking about natural water. And she says, in those terms, living water is not possible. It's not available. But he's talking about spiritual water. He's using it as a metaphor. And through him, it is possible and it is available. And so she's limiting his offer because she based on her response on what she could see, her perspective on what he's saying. And then she continued to misunderstand. She said, you don't even have a container to draw water with. You don't even have a container to get water. Jesus said, whoever drinks of the spiritual water that he's offering, whoever receives the salvation that God has provided through him, they will drink and never thirst again. She wants this magic water. She says, give me this water. I don't, I don't want to have to keep coming back here. Give me that magic water. Because she still doesn't understand where he's going. Fifth, marriage. I moved it up in the list. This is the part when the conversation seems to take an interesting shift. Jesus responded to her request for living water, give me this magic water, with a request of his own. Run home and get your husband and bring him here. Now, I believe that this is a natural flow of what Jesus is trying to accomplish with this woman. This is not some random, out of the blue question or request. It's very much in line with the story. First thing, I believe 
that Jesus is making it clear in no uncertain terms that this encounter at the well is not like what usually happens between a man and a woman who find themselves alone at a well. I think Jesus is setting the standard here. Jesus is making it clear, listen, I am not, I'm not here because I want to become your husband. I'm not here because I want to have some kind of physical relationship with you. So listen, before we talk any further, go get your husband. That's one part of it, I believe. The second, it becomes that, evident that marriage relationships are the source of the deepest wounds in this woman's life. Her relationship history has shaped her view of how she sees herself, and it also has shaped the value of what has been assigned to her by her culture. And so she responds, she says, I don't have a husband. And she's not lying. That's true. She doesn't. Folks, this is an embarrassing topic. It's hard to be this vulnerable with a stranger. And Jesus said, it's true. You're telling me the truth. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Now, I believe that this is where really bad theology has come in through the years. Because I think that we are quick to judge her that somehow she's a promiscuous woman, that she lacks character and is sinful, and we really don't know that. We don't know the details of her situation. We do know that remarriage was very common in these times because girls were often married at 12 and 13 years of age to men who were almost 30. And with the short lifespan of its time, it wasn't unusual for the husbands to die long before the women. And they were left as widows. And so because women usually depended on men in these times to provide for them, remarriage was common and necessary. So we don't know her story. Perhaps a couple of her husbands died prematurely. We don't know. Throw in there a couple of divorces. Maybe they weren't even her fault. We don't know. And by the time of the end of the fifth marriage, she's likely out of dowry or any possibility of dowry, her dad probably says, you know what? Yeah, I've, I've done five. I'm not doing another one. Right? So she's likely taken in as a concubine by some man with no commitment to marriage to look after her and provide sexually for him. It's really important for us to see what Jesus is doing here. It's important for us to see that in bringing up this embarrassing, difficult subject, he's not shaming her. A lot of people read this, they go, yeah, Jesus is calling out her sins. I don't believe that's what he's doing here. I don't believe that he's shaming her. I believe what Jesus is saying to this woman is this, I see you. I see you. I see your life. I see your history. I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I know what you've been through. I see your heartbreak. I want you to know that you're hiding it behind this facade, but I want you to know that I can see past the facade and I see you for who you really are. And I'm offering you God's gift of salvation because you're deserving of it 
even though you think you're not. Even though others may think you're not. Jesus is showing her, he sees her, and she's still worth it. It's at this moment that she realized that to know these details, he must be someone special. How does this random encounter at a well with a stranger, how does he know the intimate details of her life that maybe most, if anybody, even knows? And she comes to the conclusion, he must be a prophet. Now, when it becomes... In her mind, clear that he's a prophet, she wants to have spiritual conversations. I can relate to this because when I go anywhere with family and friends and someone leaks out the fact that I'm a pastor, that's all people want to talk about. I'm like, Sir, like there's more to me than that, guys. <laughs> they just want to ask, you know, and which is good. It opens some good conversations. But, but you know, when you find out there's a, ooh, you're a priest. I got some questions for you. I take no responsibility for the Vatican at all. Oh, Father, tell me about this. She thinks he's a prophet. How else can he know? And so she initiates a spiritual conversation based on the debate between the Jews and the Samaritans on the proper location of the temple. Wow, if you know this much, you must be able to solve the riddle of where the proper place of worship must be. Because they disagreed on the location. And Jesus said, listen, the place, the location of your worship is not what matters. It doesn't matter if it's Jerusalem or out here. It doesn't matter. The time is coming and is now here. (laughs) That the focus of worship is going to be on a person. Jesus, not on a place. Not on a place. He said, I believe, I believe that a Messiah is coming for us. And I believe when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus said, I am he. I'm right here, right in front of you right now. Six, returning home to report. When the woman left her house that day, It was a day like probably any other day. She needed water. Livestock needed water. This is her reality. She's adjusted to it. She'd accepted it. She didn't expect to find anybody there. She certainly didn't expect to find Jesus there. She came to draw water to satisfy her natural thirst, and deep inside her was a greater thirst than she probably even understood herself. And it was that inner thirst that Jesus was interested in satisfying. She needed God's salvation. And so Jesus offered her spiritual water to satisfy her inner longing because that's what she needed most. And we're told that she left her pot on the well and went into the city, a changed woman. The pot that symbolized her old life. The pot that symbolized the natural water that daily she came to draw. She left it behind because she was so excited that she had received something greater. And she began to tell everyone about her life-changing encounter. You got to come meet this guy. He told me everything I ever did. Now see, normally if this was shaming, how of us would say, 
Oh, all my sins were revealed and we run off to tell everybody, I'm so excited. All my sins are revealed and everybody knows all the garbage in my life. No. She's running off and said, he told me everything. He saw me. He saw me. And he offered me salvation. She told them, she said, I believe that he's the long-awaited Messiah. I just know it. And people are marveling at the change in her. What happened to you? We had to go and meet this person who could change someone's life that dramatically. We got to meet this person. So then finally, there's the invitation to hospitality. We're told that many Samaritans believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Not just her words, but it was visible. She, there was something different about her. And they went out to meet him for themselves. And it says that they begged him, Jesus, please, will you stay with us? Come to our home. Come to our town. Stay with us. Don't, don't leave. And he stayed two more days. And it says, because of his words, many more believed. And they told her, the woman, they said, we don't believe just because of what you told us, which was great. We've heard him for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. The change in the Samaritan woman's perspective on who Jesus is and was shifted throughout the conversation. She started by calling him a Jew. And then she referred to him as being greater than Jacob. And then she reached the point where he was a prophet. And in the end, she said, you're the Messiah. Her perspective changed and was adjusted with every part of the conversation. And the change in how she saw herself changed because of him as well. She saw herself as one who could be a recipient of God's grace. And it ultimately impacted many others who witnessed her life change. I've got to wrap this up. I'm starting to be as long as Pastor Mark. One of the faults I was talking about earlier. Step outside. It's <laughs> <laughs> my first point. <laughs> when faith, when spirituality becomes legalistic, we build walls to protect what we've built. The religious leaders of Jesus' day built walls to keep sinful people out. They added rules on top of rules to try to get people to live in a certain way. And the result, Jesus said, was spiritual death. Folks, when mission becomes the heart of faith, love builds bridges, not walls. And to those who are sinful and broken and hurting and confused. Now, let's be honest. There are times when the church has been wall builders in our attempt to strive for holiness and purity, we've disassociated in many ways with the sinful world. We, we've done that. So instead of associating with a sinful world, we, we function in a way that believers are expected to come to us, 
we'll stay away from them and they'll come to us. But I'd like to suggest today that the church is not about others coming to us. In fact, I will suggest to you, and I'm not going to elaborate on this, but you can think about this in the next 12 hours as I'm reviewing the sermon. We're more concerned with bringing people to church oftentimes than we are in bringing people to Jesus. And it's very, very different things. Those are two very different things. The church is not about others coming to us. It's about us being mobilized in the world and going to them. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, as you go, as you live your life in this world, make disciples. Jesus built built bridges, not walls. And so we have two choices like Jesus did, how we're going to walk in this world. We can circle the perimeter. We can avoid unbelievers. We can huddle in the church. We can avoid the world around us. And the focus will be on activities and programs, and it won't be on kingdom activity. And our energy will all go into and will become worn out in running the church and all of our programs and all of its parts. And the result of that eventually is that everything in the local church becomes about the believers, not about those who need to come to faith. When that happens, we're busy, but we accomplish very little for the kingdom. I believe that the local church must invest in believers. It's important. We have to minister to believers. That's important. We have to prepare believers. That's really important. But I also believe in how we invest our time and our resources and people in the local church is sometimes far from what God intended for us. The problem is we stick to what we're comfortable with and we avoid getting outside the boxes that we've created and change is not easy to make. Or like Jesus, we can pierce through. We can go to them. We can go to people. We can go where they are and have those one-on-one encounters. Now, I'm not suggesting that we compromise our values and our principles and our beliefs. I'm not doing that. I do not support people who use this pretend, you know, mission thrust as an excuse to, to live a sinful life. That's not what I'm talking about here. But Jesus is this perfect example of going to where people are without compromising truth and what's right. See, the truth is there are people that will only be reached if we're faithful to go. Most encounters are not going to take place at church because most people are not going to come to church. They just aren't. They're going to happen in our neighborhood. They're going to happen in our homes. They're going to happen in our vehicles and in our yard and in our, at our schools and, and at work and in our, at our social events. They're going to happen in rest, it's going to happen in restaurants and, and on the commute. Wherever we're living our lives, as we're going, that's where it's going to happen. Opportunities will come when we least expect them. So we've got to be ready. We've got to step outside. Secondly, we've got to see people. Sometimes as followers of Jesus, I think we struggle with what it means to see people. Sometimes we make the mistake of seeing them as projects or, you know, we target them. Those are the people we want to convert. We want to impose our message on them. And there's hundreds of books that we can read on how to convert someone, how to convince someone to evangelism. There's plans, there's programs, there's methodologies, there's hundreds of them. I'm not suggesting they don't have any value. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just doing that now so you don't have to talk to me at the end of the service. The problem is that people without Jesus are often presented as a project or a target in these materials. Not intentionally. The motives are pure. They want people to know Jesus. The motives are pure 
It's just that sometimes the methodology is flawed. Jesus didn't see people as projects. He saw them as those who were worthy to invest his time in, to invest his love in, to offer forgiveness to, so they could offer the pure, they could experience the pure joy of the life change that only he could bring. The truth is, being seen is something we all need desperately. We all need to be seen. But like the woman, we hesitate most times to let people see the most vulnerable places in our lives. The tendency of human nature is to try and hide certain areas of our lives, to not admit what we really need and who we really are. We don't others, want others to see our failures. We don't want them to see our hurts, our pain, our vulnerability, our weaknesses. We're embarrassed about our broken relationships. We're embarrassed about our sin and our, the realities in our lives. It's embarrassing. It's much better for us to pretend that we're strong, that we're in control, that we're whole when in fact we're crumbling. Because we put a lot of energy into what we want people to believe about us. Is that not true? What we want people to believe about us. Our culture is busy and shallow and it promotes putting on a facade, pretending we're okay when we're not. And this is also true in the church sometimes. The pain of our lives, our expectation of being hurt by others, of being disappointed, we decide it's better not to open up and just pretend we're okay. The risk is too great. I want to remind us this morning that Jesus doesn't function on a superficial level. He desires to heal the deepest wounds in our lives. He wants to give us to give our deepest wounds to him. And he persists in our lives, in the conversations, in the prompting of the spirit. He persists like he did with the woman because he's not content to leave us where we are. He wants us to be free. He wants to shape our story so that our story has a different ending that it's heading to at this moment. And so this is why it's important to take time to develop relationship with people. It takes time for people to let their guards down, to trust other people, to let them in, and then put their faith in Jesus. I believe most people genuinely want a solution for their pain, their hurts, their losses, their worries, their relationships, their needs, their failures, their sin. So we must see people. We need to see them. We need to listen to people. We need to observe people. We need to em empathize with people. We need to learn what it means to care for people, not just about people. I believe the church in many ways and many of us are really good at caring about people. I'm concerned about your plight. I will pray for you. My thoughts and prayers are with you. And um, by the way, if you ever need something, let me know. <laughs> How many of us in this room are going to tell somebody when we need something? We're not. For the most part, we're not. If there's something that we need, if, if we need a meal tonight, we're not going to say, you know what? 
This is going on in my life all day today. We're exhausted and I'm tired. Is there any way you could provide a meal for us tomorrow night so when we get back from that, it's okay? We're not going to ask for that. None of us are going to ask for that. But that's the difference in caring about because most people will never, ever let you know. Let me know. I say it to people all the time. Well, just let me know if you need anything. What does that mean, really? There's a difference in caring for and caring about. And we need the Holy Spirit to help us hear and see and empathize and act. Not just care. Caring is good. But the Holy Spirit wants to take us to a step further from caring about to caring for. And finally, show love. The greatest impact we can make on a person's life is the love that flows from the testimony of a life that has been changed by the love of Jesus. When we have been changed by the love of Jesus, there is a love that flows from us that is the greatest testimony we could ever have. People need to see that there's something different about us. But we got to be careful what that different is. Right? I mean, we all have that cousin or brother or sister. They're different. Right? Oh, Uncle so-and-so's coming. Oh, roll the eyes. He's different. Right? I mean, anybody here not have one of them in your family? Everybody needs one of them. They're different. There's different kinds of different. And, and so what I'm trying to suggest here is we got to be careful what the difference is. It's not that we have a difference of opinion. It's not that we have a difference in our perspective. It's not that we have a different political allegiance. It's not that we have a different stand on certain hot-button issues. May I suggest to us this morning that it's not opinions or perspectives or political allegiances or stands on hot-button issues that draw people to Jesus. Those are not the things that draw people to Jesus. It's the love that flows from a life of a person who's been changed because they encountered Jesus and God's salvation came into their lives. People will see the change in us. That they'll see that there's something good about us. And they might not even be able to explain what it was. I'm sure when that woman walked into town, they said, I don't know what it is, but she's different. She's different. It's the testimony of a changed life that draws people. And love is our testimony. Love is our testimony. I invite the worship team back. Folks, an encounter with Jesus changes how we see ourselves and how we see others. So let's step outside. Let's see people. And let's share his love. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. And as our worship team leads us this morning, I'm going to invite you, if you would like someone to pray with you today, to join us come and to pray. Maybe you don't have a need this morning, but in this next few moments of worship, you want to just allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your life. Maybe to listen to the areas that 
he's trying to bring to your attention that you've buried deep, deep, deep down. Or maybe how he wants you to to be someone who sees people different than you've seen them to this point. But I believe we need to allow the Holy Spirit to show that to us this morning. So as the prayer team comes, I invite you to come and it looks like I might be the prayer team this morning. That's okay. I'm professionally trained. I can handle it. It just might take a little longer. Worship team, would you lead us this morning?